Well, this morning, uh, I, I don't have a Mother's Day message. I have a message for mothers, though. And so, what we're going to do this morning is continue in our study of the book of Exodus and paying particular attention right now to this teaching instrument that God has put in his word called the tabernacle. We've been looking at that the last couple of weeks. And let me just say this. Let me say this to the moms because what I want to do this morning is I'm not intending to leave everybody out in how we're going to apply this message, but I do want to pull my arrow back and shoot it at moms in particular this morning. The tabernacle, this study in scripture, this massive amount of information that God put in the Old Testament, as I said last week, it occupies the biggest point of Old Testament real estate that there is. And it's foreshadowing something that obviously we see fulfilled in the New Testament. But this tabernacle is about something very simple, but not simple to accomplish. It's about the nearness of God. That's what it's about. The tabernacle is about God saying, I want to be near to my people. That's what's in the heart of God. So this is something God creates. He invents and it communicates how God would be near to us. And so I know in every season of life, I think in every human heart, there is a longing for us to know God is near to me. God knows what's going on in my world. God knows the pain I'm going through. God is sharing the joys and the excitement with me. We want this, right? And I don't know too many activities in life, too many roles in life that don't need the nearness of God and an awareness of the nearness of God than the role of being a mother. With all that that involves, all the hats that you wear, all the relationships that you encounter, all the seasons that you walk through, the heightened sense of joy and elation and the low valleys of darkness that encounter a woman as she walks through all those seasons and times of being a mother. And and Evan pointed out a number of those elements that make today... An odd combination of a day of great celebration in our midst and also a day that's really difficult for many women here. And there'd be some, I'm looking around seeing faces and I realize for some, it's both of them. It's a day that they're very excited about, very grateful for and celebrating, but there's another part of them. This is a difficult day. And what we need is the nearness of God. Life always needs the nearness of God. What we long for, what we cry out for, we need the nearness of God. And so today, I want you to listen carefully. I want all of us to hear carefully, but I want moms to listen carefully in particular. Because it's gonna, it, this is, I'm, gonna, I'm just following the tabernacle as the thing God gave to us to learn something from it. So I'm not inventing a clever idea for any of us today. But I am going to say what you're going to experience by way of how do, you, how do you get courage and confidence, ladies, and hope into your life is going to be in a very unconventional manner. If you travel with us through this tabernacle today, it's a very unconventional thing. As a matter of fact, it's going to take me a minute to convince you to do it this way. Because the world that you live in has convinced you to avoid the thing I'm going to convince you to stare at. 
And I'm not trying to convince you of it. The tabernacle actually convinces you of it. And if, if you ignore this, the tabernacle falls apart and it doesn't make any sense. Right? But one of the things that we have learned, and let me put that on my image here, the, the tabernacle. up. One of the things that we have learned here is that we are on this, this journey into the presence of God. Now, I, I've chosen for us to pick the story up by following our journey. But if you follow Exodus, and this is theologically very important that you catch this. When we get introduced to the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 25, it doesn't start on our end and move us toward God. It starts on God's end and moves him toward us. Right, so you'll notice to do it the way we're doing, I'm having to hop and skip around in it. Because God's perspective is, I'm the one pursuing you. You're not the ones pursuing me. So this tabernacle starts with the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil, the second veil, where the manifesting of God's presence takes place. It starts there and then it moves its way out. It moves from the Holy of Holies into the holy place, then to the outer court and into the world. So that's really how God does this drawing near thing. So for any of us who are thinking, hey, I'm doing my part. Where is God doing? No, 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 no. That's not what the tabernacle teaches. The tabernacle teaches that it's God who's doing his part. Long before any of us have a clue about how to even do our part. But here's, here's the tabernacle proper, the actual tent of meeting. Uh, there's another dimension to it that's outside of this that we're going to actually look at a little bit again today. But that chamber that you see, the first one that you see that the priest would enter into is what we come to understand is the holy place. And beyond that veil is that last chamber there where the, the Ark of the Covenant is, is the Holy of Holies. And so let me just set before us this place. Look at Exodus with me, chapter 25. We get introduced to this holy place right and so as we move out from the ark the first thing we encounter out of the holy of holies is this holy place and here's what's in this holy place and i'm really not going to develop this too much but it's where we're headed exodus 25 verse 23 and you can see these on the the imagery that's there there's three pieces of furniture that are in this holy place We're not going to unpack those today, just to make you aware that they're there. Verse 23 of chapter 25 says, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And then there's more details on that. Then in verse 30 it says, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So in the holy place is this gold table with the bread of the presence of God on that table. Very important that God chose these things there. Also in that chamber... You would see in verse 31, the lampstand that provides light. Verse 31 says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. And then down in verse 37, again, there's description here about the details of this. It says, then you shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. 
Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of the talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Again, this important revelation that these are not man's ideas. No man is inventing his approach to God. God is revealing how you approach me. So that's pretty important stuff in our day and age. Look in verse, in chapter 30. Fast forward a bit. This is the last piece of furniture that's in this chamber. Chapter 30, verse 1. It says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. And then down in verse 6, it says, you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Right, so that's what's in this particular chamber. And, and what we're going to learn about from that chamber, not today though, is in that chamber, man ministers before the Lord. God welcomes him into his presence. And certain things are happening as a result of these particular pieces of furniture that are put in this place. So here, you and I are people today trying to figure out how does God fit in the grand scheme of our lives? This tabernacle teaches us a lot Because it reveals to us things that are important to God, things that are about us and how we relate to God. This is a meeting place. So this is very much about how do we approach God. And at some point you become aware and I become aware that there is a God out there. How do you get near to that God? How many of you recognize that most of us just invent our own way? Right? We just come up with our own scheme, our own plan. We inherit it from some ideas that are around us. We see a few things. We create God in our own image and we approach him. This is teaching us how to approach God. Right? So here, let me put that bigger image up. Of the, Here's the entire look of the tabernacle. If you were in the nation of Israel, this curtain that went around that we learned about last week. And then inside of that would be, here's what's going on. So you have the the tent of meeting and outside of that tent, you have the laver and the bronze altar where sacrifices were taking place. And Pastor Peter helped us uh, with those a few weeks ago to understand what those were about. But here's what's happening in this place. The God who created everything, he wants to manifest his presence He wants to reveal his character and his glory on the earth in a special, unique way. So can I just take us to to a little bit of Bible school here for a second on what's the whole idea behind a God who wants to reveal his glory? By the way, that's what this book is about. And if you miss that, you live all of your life chronically asking God for refund after refund, standing in the complaint line after one complaint line after another complaint line, because you and I think this book is about something else. It's about God revealing his glory in his creation. But he doesn't do that the same way everywhere, right? When there were, I think we have an encampment image here. Encamped around this tabernacle would have been the nation of Israel. 
outside of this encampment would have been the rest of the world. So you have to recognize God is manifesting his presence everywhere, right? All of us believe that. God is omnipresent. Most of us believe that. God's everywhere. But he's not exactly showing up the same way everywhere. That's very important that you see that. Otherwise, for you, as a person in a relationship with God, what do you expect from him? How do you expect to meet God? Do you expect to meet him just like the people who don't even know him? Who don't trust him? Or does God show up in your life uniquely? Well, that's what Exodus teaches. Right? There's a place where God's presence is manifest all over. Right Outside the camp, into the world, we get, we get manifestations like Psalm 19 there in your outline. Verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. I mean, I love the imagery there. It's like the planets are yelling at us. There's God. And the ones that are really, 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 really far away that we're just discovering. They're yelling back at us and say, took you a while to find me, didn't you? I'm way over here because the God who made me is enormous and creative. And scattered me so far that it took you forever to even know I existed. Right? This is the speech that creation is making to us on a daily basis. It says, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Romans chapter 1 says this about this manifestation of God's glory. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, right? The invisible God and his attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, God has left his fingerprints all over the place. I've got... I've got multiple dogs that live with me and they put paw prints all over the place. I've got one dog that's much larger than the rest of the dogs. You absolutely know when that dog has been around. And there's, there's big paw prints all over the backyard, right? Wherever there's mud, there's giant paw prints. I have no question a dog was here. A big dog was here. As a matter of fact, there's stuff that I step in when I'm cutting the grass that it convinces me all the more. A big dog was here. Um, when you and I visit creation and we stare out at the created order, God, God says, you notice my fingerprints. Now, humanity can answer back to God. You know, remember, humanity's got a brain that's about the size of your fist. Can answer back to the infinite God and say, I didn't notice you. You didn't provide the kind of evidence that I'm looking for. I don't even know if you exist. I don't know if I believe in you. I'm an atheist. And can I just tell you, the God of the universe says, I left my fingerprints everywhere and you see them and you are without excuse. So if you're sitting here today and kind of enjoying running life on your own terms, the God of the universe says, I left my fingerprints everywhere for you to notice that I'm here and I'm just waiting for you to turn to me and honor me as the one who created everything that you've been staring at. And God thinks he's done enough. In that category. And if you'll walk down that trail, you'll discover God and you'll come to know Him deeply. And apparently, we're without excuse. But what God did was, My glory is everywhere, fingerprints are everywhere. But you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose a nation 
and I'm going to do something special among that nation. Right? So we get in Deuteronomy chapter 4. God says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Wow. Just, some of you need to be listening for God there, I'm telling you. This could be your last few moments. You better get it right. Isaiah 49 verse 6, God speaks about this nation that he drew near to in a special way, right? Uh, When God shows up, remember at Exodus, on Mount Sinai, there's one nation present. How'd that nation get there? God showed up where they were, sent a messenger to them and said, hey guys, time to go. You're going to leave Egypt and you're going to go park yourself at Mount Sinai. And God summoned a nation to himself. Because he had the right to do that. It's one of the things I love about this book is it, is it puts humanity in its place. I need to be put in my place. And so God demonstrates, I've got the right to say, hey you, whatever you're doing over here, stop doing that and come over here and do what I want you to do. God has the right to do that. And God has the right to do that with one nation and not invite any of the other nations to come. God has a meeting with man in Mount Sinai. There's one nation present. There's no other nation there. And God chose that nation because they were the most unimpressive bunch of people on the planet. Sorry, if you're Jewish here, I don't mean to slam you there, but that's what the Bible says. So they get called into a special relationship with God. Now what God's going to do through that nation, Isaiah later says, I will make you, this nation, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God is going to choose. I've got glory scattered in the heavens that you can see and in all of creation, but I choose a nation to uniquely be among them. And that's why this tabernacle exists. So God can uniquely be among these people. So... Here you have all these folks that are encamped there and they're bringing their offerings. And Romans chapter 9 speaks this about this special nation. It says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. That was the tabernacle system and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God. If you ever have any question, does the Bible actually label Jesus as God? Yeah, all over the place. That's an example. Who's blessed forever. Amen. And he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, God chose a nation, but maybe some of that nation didn't choose him. Huh? So did God's plan fail? No, didn't fail. He had always intended that those who had faith would be in a relationship with him and those who did not, would not. So even among Israel, and this is a sobering word from a few thousand years ago, but it's a sobering word for us today. Even among churchgoers, it doesn't mean that every one of us in this room today has a real relationship with God. But only those who are truly of faith and have put their hope in God. They are in a relationship with God. But even among this nation, right, there is is an approaching God into a greater sense of his presence and his awareness. 
His nearness is going to be manifest in a powerful way over the ark of that covenant. And this is how we draw near to the presence of God as those who are included amongst God's people. So look at this next section. Right? And this is, this is critical. And th- this is critical as a gift to mothers today. Can you get that next section up there for me? All right, this would be the outer courts, right? You pass through that curtain and you pass into the outer court. And in that outer court, you see that burning thing and then behind it is a laver. So there is an altar of sacrifice, hold on to that word, and there is a laver of cleansing. And when you hear that description, and you as an Israelite understand what that is, Everybody passing into that opening right there, these, these are not spectators. These are participants. And so they come through the opening in there. And by the way, they never come alone. Because you don't approach God for no reason. You approach God and you had a, on a little leash a lamb or a goat with you. So everybody passing through there was walking through with a lamb or a goat that they were going to walk to this altar with. And by the way, when they left there, they weren't going to have that lamb or that goat with them anymore. Because that lamb or that goat was going to be sacrificed on that altar. So you had these two images, and these two images speak something to humanity. You have the altar and you have the labor. Now, I'm just curious here how you feel about that. Because it's teaching you something. It's teaching you, one, that that's necessary. If you're going to approach God, there needs to be an altar and there's going to need to be a labor. But for you to get into that second room and get close to God. So if you want to approach God, there's going to need to be an altar and there's going to need to be a labor. How do you feel about that? I'm not making this stuff up, right? This is, I'm just telling you what's in the Bible. Because there's some people in this room, when they hear that, the outer court, the altar, the sacrifice, they're in this room right now and they're going, yes. And then there's some who are in this room that they perceive the other side of sacrifice and they feel condemned by it. And so if I preach the outer court today, which we're going to pass through it. Some people are going to be rejoicing at it. And some people are going to feel like that weighs a ton of bricks. Because see, the very nature of sacrifice, right? We do know our sacrifices in the Bible. For you to come in contact with a sacrifice. A sacrifice is an innocent one taking the place of a guilty one. Which part do you play? So you can't come near this thing without becoming aware of what? My guilt. People don't like to be made to feel guilty. People don't like to come in contact with the possibility that I have failed. I have fallen short. I'm I'm just not all that. I have sinned. I have things that I never get around to doing that should have been done. It should have been more important priorities. 
So this, this concept here screams out at us more than one thing. For a sacrifice to make any sense at all. You are coming there for a reason. You are dragging that little lamb with you for a reason. Because you are guilty. Nobody likes to hear that. I don't like to hear that. I get to preach this, but that doesn't mean that I have. Yeah, I love feeling guilty. I love it. I love the idea that I've just screwed up all over the place throughout my life. That I've fallen short. That my falling short had consequences. That it had an impact on God. That God was disapproving of it. How many of y'all love the idea that maybe God disapproved of something you did? Me love the idea that maybe what you did had consequences in your life and in others' lives. This is a hard thing to come to grips with. And I sit there and thinking, okay, meaningful roles give more opportunity for this to come to life. Right? You sit around, do nothing, don't have much by way of relationship, not much responsibility. You don't have as many chances to fail at something, to cause damage, to disappoint others. But what if you step forward and you're going to be a mother? People are going to be in your life, all kinds of people, different ones, different personalities, different needs. You're going to be you know, a husband in your life. Boy, how many of you know that there's a lot of opportunities to fall short as a mother? I sat here thinking, you know, my mom died a few years ago. And I sat thinking, oh. Lord, this message would have been such a gift to her. To be able to face motherhood with all of its opportunities to fail, fall short, feel like you didn't do something right, and to be able to absorb what this is saying in such a way that you get to draw near to God as a mother. And experience him. There are issues that maybe you faced as a mom. That nothing can fix you. Except the presence of God. And there's only one way in. And when you step into this. You got that other image that you can put up there. When you, the next one. When you step into this setting, this, this is what it looked like. There's blood all over the place. There are animals that were alive a few minutes ago and they're dead now. And you would have consciously transferred the guilt and the, and the falling short of God's glory, which is what sin is, to that animal. You would have owned it and transferred it to that animal. And that animal would have taken your place. As awkward as it would have been to actually stare your issue right in the face and say, I'm here because I did this or I failed to do this. As as difficult as that is, it is God's means of releasing you from it so that you can go on into the holy place, into the presence of God, which your life so needs. But I am fully aware of this. Uh, 
We live in a time that wants to close its ears to anything negative, period, much less anything negative about me. Don't show me anything negative about me. I can't bear to hear it. And if you do that, you must be doing something wrong. But you do recognize, look, turn to Hebrews with me. God invented this. The God who knows our consciences better than we do invented this as a means of helping us. Hebrews chapter 10. By the way, if you're wondering how to understand the tabernacle, Hebrews is the New Testament book to give you some insight. Hebrews 10 verse 1. This is what we encounter when we walk into this outer court. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, that's what this image is, is sacrificing, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers have... Having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God invented this square space where you would walk in through one opening and the first thing you encountered, verse 3, was designed to remind you of your sins. I don't know whether to thank God for that or not, huh? That sacrificial death is taking place because of me. Something I did. How do you, how do you deal with the, the sense that I, I have fallen short? Me, I have fallen short in all kinds of ways in my life. Mothers have fallen short. They're here, they want to celebrate this day, but you, you're aware. How do you deal with this? Can I just, can I rescue you this morning? You don't deal with sin by ignoring it. You don't deal with sin by hiding it underneath things. You don't deal with sin by avoiding anything that reminds you of it. And you'll notice this. If this has become your method, you avoid settings where a, a element of standards gets put in front of you because you suddenly become aware of fall short. I'm going to avoid that. So maybe don't come to church. Because church is always talking about being right, righteous things, and all kinds of stuff I don't do. And I don't pray, I don't read my Bible. Every time I go to church, I feel like, oh, geez. So you've already, if you notice that you're avoiding those settings, you've already sought a different remedy than God's to dealing with sin and weakness and failures in our lives. You think, I just need to silence my awareness to my sin. That'll fix me. Listen, even if I fast forward from this moment on Mount Sinai where God reveals this, all the way into the New Testament, on the other side of the perfect lamb having died, on the other side of that, the New Testament doesn't encourage you to close your ears to your own sin and ignore it and don't get reminded of it and don't be aware of it. The New Testament doesn't do that, right? 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, 
To confess is to own them and say, yep, that one's mine before God. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. Where did these two concepts come from? The altar and the labor. This is outer court language in the tabernacle. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And we make this whole scene very confusing. And the whole fact that we sing all these songs about sacrifices, very confusing. Oh, I'm not really aware of my own sins. I'm not really aware of my sins. Well, what the heck is that animal on fire for? Barbecue? No, he's dead because somebody's sin required his life to be taken. Why did Jesus ever come and die? This is where people can treat Jesus as disposable. Because their sin isn't enough of an issue to be solved. But, you know, I believe in a God who's kind of okay with everything being okay. That's what I believe. So what about your sin? Well, you know, I'm sure I'm not perfect, but it's not that big a deal to this God. Well, then Jesus doesn't really need to ever have existed, does he? We make God a liar. Because God built a tabernacle that says, hey, the first thing I need to get across to you guys is you have fallen short of my glory. And so you getting near my glory is going to be a problem. So let's talk about that first. That's the first thing we encounter. Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, right, not avoiding the subject, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Isn't it interesting in that passage? You're not encouraged to close your ears or eyes to the awareness of your own sin. You're called upon to be aware of something else that's greater than your own sin. Listen, in the church world today, pulpits are turning into moments of positivity. And the way that feels is, I don't talk about sin from the pulpit. And I don't highlight anything that can feel sinful. It's just about positive. It's about all the good things God's got for you. All the ways that he loves you. Just like you are. And there's nothing that ever makes you feel like, ooh, I need to get that off of me. That's not what the Bible sounds like. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right? When we get into this holy place, we're going we're to discover an altar of incense that's there that we will discover is the intercession and it's the prayers that go up before God. Chief in that category is the intercession of the Son of God himself. Why is he interceding? Because the people who come through the outer courts are sinful. And he stands before the throne and he makes a case for us. Not because there hasn't been any sin, but because there has. Hebrews chapter 10. Look in verse 11. All right. what's, the, what's the remedy here? What's the remedy to an awareness that I have fallen short Hebrews 10 verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where do you get your sense of rightness from? Where do you get, I've been wrong. I'm going to say, yeah, but you have the ability in this plan of God to have been really, really, really wrong in some really meaningful categories and at the same time know that you are perfected before God. How on earth does that ever happen? Well, this is how it happens. And you pass through the outer court into the presence of God. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds... I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. God has done something amazing. He has taken away our sins. Let me me fix something that pollutes this concept here. It's this cute little saying, this cute little idea that twists verse 17 into something that it's not saying. It's the idea that God doesn't have any conscious awareness that you've ever sinned. I've kind of heard, you know, popular speakers turn that into, and they're trying to rescue people from navel-gazing, self-condemnation, you know, all of us have a tendency to do that so their rescue is to introduce an idea that God doesn't know what you're talking about you know you're all morose and all come before God all beat up and uh, uh, and God's looking at you like what are you talking about I don't know what you're talking about like God has no recollection of your sin well first John would say that would make God a liar The outer court would make no sense. The scars, permanently scarred hands of the Messiah who in heaven has scars on his body that he draped himself in that he continues to wear would make no sense. How many of you guys know we're not going to be a billion years from now in heaven going, you know, I still can't figure out what those scars are about in your hands. Jesus, can you help me with that? What is that? And he turns back and says, you know, I have no idea. Me neither. I don't know why these are here. And what will we sing about? Will we sing the song of the lamb? Well, you can't sing the song of the lamb because the lamb is a sacrifice, you see. And to have a sacrifice, you have to have guilty ones and an innocent one. So you can't sing that song. That song's out. You understand, this stuff doesn't make any sense. What that word actually means in the original language is that God takes it off of the ledger sheet of our life. God no longer has it as a basis to hold it against us. God no longer requires any payment for that sin. So he remembers it in that way no more. So there's never a day that God is coming to you. And how many of us have terrible theology in this area? Two two or three bad things go wrong in our life and we think, "Uh, God's punishing me for what I did last week. Oh, can you just be assured of this? The punishment for what you did last week was visited in that outer court on the Lamb of God who went to a cross to take your place. 
There is no punishment left. And if you want to figure out what God's doing in your life by bringing difficulty in your life, there's lots in the Bible that can teach you what he's doing. But to associate difficulty, failures, problems in your life with payment, there's nothing more offensive to God than that. Because what it says is whatever Jesus did on that cross, he didn't quite pay at all. He left some of it for you to pay. And the God who took our sins and visited them all on the Son of God and then poured out his penalty on him is not pleased an ounce for us to have the opinion that he held back some of it. He's waiting to give it to you the next time you screw up. Does that mean God doesn't deal with us? Yeah, he deals with us. That's not the basis for him dealing with us because that verse says he will remember our sins no more. He will not come and charge them to us. He will not show up at your door one day suddenly saying, I demand you pay. I've had enough of this. I demand you pay this, which you did last week. That's what that verse means. It doesn't mean God's running around going, what sin? I didn't know anybody sinned. Remember, the tabernacle came down to us from heaven. It exists in heaven. So these concepts are in heaven. And they're clearly understood by God. But what amazement here. God does something to our sins that changes us. As we pass through this outer courts. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 13 says this. If the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. Where did all this stuff come from? Right? All these images, that's that altar right there. The ashes from that altar, the blood of bulls and goats, that's all from the outer court imagery. If these things sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What's the remedy to the fact that you and I have fallen short and have sinned? It's to have our consciences cleaned by the altar and the labor. And the imagery here is, right, if you entered into this courtyard, towing your lamb, you would have come here and you would have given that sin up to God. As an, you would have owned it, confessed it, transferred it to that guilty, now guilty animal. And he would have taken your place. And then the priest, who you and I have become, by the way, the priest would have washed in the laver, having offered his own sacrifice for his own sins, and then he would have passed beyond the first veil into the place where the table of showbread was and the altar of incense was and the lamp was there, and he would have served the living God in that place, having passed through the outer court. I say, it's, it's not a remedy to try and isolate yourself from an awareness of your sins to fix your guilty conscience. That will never fix you. You need to stare at the altar and the labor so that you can go on. Do you know how many people never go on from their sin because they think, Keith, stop mentioning my sin to me. Don't, don't go there with me. This is more powerful than that. You can go there 
and get something from God. That outer court was intended to pull that veil back and let the, the priest go near to God. What let him do that? The altar and the labor. Not avoiding the altar. Not wait until it's nighttime. Crawl in where nobody can see. Crawl under the veil. He'd have been cooked by God. Don't crawl in before God some other way. You go exactly through the way God said to go through. And then look what happens in Hebrews 10 verse 19. Therefore, brothers. It's a big therefore right here. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Where did that sprinkling and that water come from? The altar and the labor. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. This person gets to go on. Not just go on, limping go on, but go on in confidence, with assurance, and with hope. I mean, you get the transaction here? Just a minute ago, they were standing outside the tent with a little animal there, only aware of their guilt. That's all they were aware of. I'm here today because I have sinned against the perfect God. I have fallen short. Moments later, they're going to walk with that sin to an altar and the sprinkling effect of what Jesus Christ did in this tabernacle to put his blood and to cleanse us now makes us able with confidence and assurance. So maybe you walked in feeling, oh, but moments later, you walk past that into the presence of God to go on in God's presence. Wow! What an accomplishment that happened. But it didn't happen by avoiding awareness of our sins. Whatever you did with that animal is meaningless until you put your hands on it. You said, I have fallen short in this way. And confessed it and transferred it there. So that God could swallow it up. I think I wrote this in your outline. It says, we must not try to silence the awareness of our sin by longing for a theology that ignores our sin. This kind of positive only movement. People who teach things only by accentuating what's positive. How God is love and he's for you. I mean, listen, I could use to be more positive, all right? Anybody want to stand in line and tell me that? Get behind my wife and my kids and say, hey, Keith, you could use a little better dose of positive, okay? I get that. Theologically, though, if you are trying to protect yourself from that which feels negative, you, you are shipwrecking your ability to ever feel cleansed. Your lack of awareness, you just think you're lacking in awareness. It's in the closet behind the thought you're trying to not think right now. And you know it's there. And it haunts you. And every once in a while, you can smell it. You know it's there. You didn't get rid of it by not seeing it. It's there. This takes it away. There's a big difference. 
trying to convince ourselves that we're not that bad or as bad as others. We're putting our hands over our ears and hearing moments like this. We put our hands over our ears and we say, God is love, God is love. Don't tell me that. God is love. I don't hear you. God is love. I haven't done anything that bad. I'm not that bad. Other people are worse than me. God is love. You, You don't need Jesus for that. You just need positive information. Which, you know, in the grand scheme of humanity, there's always been positive information. But when Norman Vincent Peale shows up in the middle of the 20th century, he ignites something in the positive mental attitude movement that was toxic to the gospel in some ways. Because it made you feel that if you feel negative, you're doing something wrong. And if somebody makes you feel negative, they're doing something wrong. Listen, I'm just telling you about the tabernacle. That scene in the tabernacle is your first encounter of your first step toward God. Don't tell me that's wrong. That's the best right thing that could happen to somebody who has sin in their life is to encounter God's means of dealing with sin. Not ignoring it. And not evading it. It's not a bad thing. Can I tell you today, it's a safe thing for you to be aware that you fall short. It's safe to do that. Listen to this interesting thought. Charles Spurgeon is a pastor in London, England in the late 1800s. He said, it is well also to have a deep, sensible knowledge of sin. Penitential prayers are impossible without this. And how can prayers be accepted if penitence is not mixed with our petitions? We need at the same time that we have the knowledge of sin to have a knowledge of our own weaknesses, right? We're just not good at everything. The man who is consciously weak prays for strength. But he who dreams that he is strong will not do so. I love that phrase. This is 70 years before Norman Vincent Peale shows up. Power of positive thinking. That's if you don't know who Norman Vincent Peale is. He's the guy who starts the positive thinking movement. And that's the person who dreams he is strong. No, I am strong. No, I am the head, not the tail. I am, I am, I am. I'm all these great things. But he can't face the fact that, but you're not all that all the time. You need to study yourselves before you pray. So as to ask for those things in which you are most deficient and for protection against those constitutional tendencies or besetting sins to which you are most subject. Well, how would I know any of that if I'm scared to look at me? I can't face my weaknesses. I can't face my sins because they make me feel icky. They make me feel disqualified. They make me feel... You know, one thing that can really be missing in people's lives, one thing that looking at your own sin and weaknesses does, is it humbles you. It makes you humble, which is what drives us to God. Our neediness, our sense of we need God. But you know what that humbleness will do in your relationship with other people? It will revolutionize your relationships with other people. Because I guarantee you this, if you can't stand to look at your sins and weaknesses, if you can't stand to even go there, I can't go there, 
then you're by nature not a humble person. And you're probably very critical of everybody else, very hard to get along with, very hard to be around because you got nothing inside of you that says, what about you? Because you shut that voice off. You can't stand to have anything tell you what about you. So you've learned to silence that thing. So you don't read those kinds of books. You don't go to these kinds of churches. You don't hang out with those people who do that stuff better than you do it. Right? If you think you're a bad parent, you don't get around any good parents. You think your marriage is like, whew, out to lunch? You don't want to go to like a, a marriage meeting with people who look like they're walking on water. Why? Because I come in contact with me when I do that. And I'm not very good at that. And I don't like the way that feels. So I just avoid that at all costs. Well, then if you're not aware of your own condition, it's just very easy to be critical of others and judgmental of them because you don't let your issues humble you and drive you to God. This is a mystery, but you want to figure out why some people are just... Just difficult people. You want to dig down into their life and figure out why is this person so hard to be around? This is why they have not found a remedy for their sin. And whatever Jesus did, this wasn't strong enough to deal with their sin. So they find another remedy. And their other remedy is stop telling me about my sin. Listen, I'm going to finish with this other quote. You can come up from Charles Spurgeon here in just a second. Now what's, what's the remedy here? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the remedy for that? How do we... How do we move on? Well, this says that we can have our consciences cleansed and go on to serve the living God, no longer paralyzed by those things, no longer controlled by them. Because we actually approach God the way God said to approach him. So please, don't be afraid of your own sin and weaknesses. Something greater is here than your own sin and weaknesses. You don't have to be afraid to acknowledge them. To discover them. To let others see them. You don't have to be afraid. Because the one who's going to deal with them is going to take them away and give you access to his presence. And you will feel as healed as you're ever going to feel by that presence. That accepts you with full knowledge that it took my son's death in the outer court to get you to stand in my presence. And yet here you are. Confident and assured, the Bible says, in God's presence. Listen, you cannot, you don't hear anything else I said today, you cannot deal with your sins and your weaknesses by strategizing a life that keeps you from seeing them. You cannot and you must not do that. Listen, don't be afraid. You're walking down the street, I walk at night, dogs bark at me. You know, there'd be some dogs I'd be concerned about. But, you know, let's suppose you're walking down the street and there's this chihuahua that just comes charging at you. Ever face a charging chihuahua? Charging chihuahua. And so maybe you're just afraid of anything biting you. Here comes the charging chihuahua. You know, if I'm out walking my pet lion, I'm not concerned about the charging chihuahua, am I? I'm thinking, one bite, you're done. I'm, I'm at peace, I'm just... 
cruising down the street here. You know, the Rottweiler that comes walking out, I'm walking my 500-pound pet lion. I'm not concerned. Bark all you want. See, the remedy to loud barking sin is a pet lion of Judah who eats sin for breakfast and takes it away and gives you access to the presence of God that makes you to know you are cleansed and forgiven and right with him. There is no other fix but that one. And that's why this tabernacle teaches us what it teaches us. Mothers, can I close by just praying for you today? And all the examples that Evan mentioned and and many more where motherhood can feel like I have failed at the most important thing in the world. I'm just not any good at this. I'm out of relationship with my children. And maybe you're scared to death to admit at all. I mean, relationships are always two-way streets. Certainly they have their part to own. But maybe part of the reason you're out of relationship is because something you did. Or something you failed to do. You're too self-absorbed. You're too distracted. You had other things going on in your life in that season of their life and you just weren't there for them. And you know how you protect yourself from that? You just blame them. Right? They don't call. They don't this. They don't that. Because the last thing in the world you could let yourself do is admit that anything you might have done fell short. And you will never feel cleansed. No matter what way you maybe have failed in the category of of a mother. The presence of God awaits you. You can't get there though. Unless you pass through this outer court where sins are laid on the Son of God. And he dies in our place. My mom lived to be 83 years old. I don't think she ever knew this. took me a long time to figure out why she responded to life the way she did. Why she responded to people the way she did. Why could she be so difficult and trying to push people away? Because she kept trying to hide from her sin and hide it rather than transferring it to the one who could take it away. This tabernacle is a big, giant lesson in how to approach God. And listen, if you're here this morning and you are hiding your sin or seeking to hide from it somehow, can I just tell you, this is... This is God's remedy. 
to put your faith in the one who went to that outer court and died not on a blazing altar but on a cross and to take your sins and enter that court you want to be near to God first thing walk right into that court and confess your sins onto Jesus Christ and let him take your place and let that blood wash you and cleanse you so that you can take the next step into the presence of God even though you know that you have sinned even though you know you failed you still can go on because the power of what Christ did cleanses you from your sins and you now as Hebrew says can serve the living God in his presence and the Bible says blameless with great joy listen if you've never done that you can do that this morning you can make Mother's Day the place where you said you know I remember that picture walking into a tabernacle walking into a setting transferring my sin to Christ it was Mother's Day 2017 if you've never done that before then right now you can pray and you can transfer those things to Christ and let him take your place and let him bring forgiveness into your life and let him invite you near to him to experience his presence let me pray for you this morning let's bow our heads Lord, for any here this morning who have never been aware consciously of having done that, God, would this morning be the morning? We're trying to be fixed by ignoring or hiding or minimizing sin isn't the way to fix. This morning, owning sin and transferring it to the one who can take it away. I pray for all who are here this morning who have never done that. Right now, in their hearts, they would do that. And by faith, they would do that. They would confess to you, God, I have fallen short in my life. But you made a way for me to come near to you through your son. So I transfer all the ways that I've fallen short and all my sin to him to take my sins away. And I receive your cleansing today. I receive your forgiveness today. And I step toward you, God. I step to come near to you. I thought I'd never be able to do that given what I had done. But you have made a way. For me, not just to think you're a loving God, but to know your love. Not just to feel like maybe you would forgive me and have mercy but to know your forgiveness and your mercy and to feel the cleansing come over my life God would that be the grace that you give to us through this tabernacle to be released from our sins into your presence to stand there with full assurance and confidence and hope that we can have no other way and you have made possible for us. So God, thank you. Thank you for this tabernacle, Lord.
Bless our mothers in particular with a deep awareness of their ability to stand before you blameless without you remembering their sins and you welcoming them. Lord, let today, let them experience that welcome. Let them experience your nearness. Let them experience the good of the God who has come near to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Happy Mother's Day.